Matthew chapter 18. Okay, we'll begin by reading the text. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what your Bible teaches on this, this topic that is not too popular. Um, we pray that you would form and shape our hearts by your word for the glory of your only begotten Son. Amen. It's very difficult to read anywhere in the Bible without seeing the, the truth or the idea of, of God fitting us, preparing us for our heavenly home. What is inferred by heaven is that that is in the presence of God. And to be there, we have to be made ready. Every one of the apostles' epistles written to the church has the glory of God and the personal life of the believer as part of its purpose. That they are being sanctified, that they are repenting of sin and growing in obedience to the Word of God. We might say that this is the, the aspect of the law that is coming forth in the Word of God. Not to be confused with our justification in Jesus. One of our favorite passages is Luke chapter 6 when it comes to this sort of talk. Jesus here says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The, the term there, Lord, in Greek, kyrios, meaning master, uh, meaning the one who you obey unconditionally. He says, why, why are you calling me Lord, and yet you don't obey what I'm telling you to do? You're not really one of my followers. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst again. That house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who had heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. The way that we prepare for death is right now, not an hour before you die, right now, faithfully disciplining ourselves 
to follow Jesus. And to be a disciplined follower of Jesus means you say no to temptations even when you don't feel like saying no. You pray when when it seems as though your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and don't seem to be making much difference. You read the Word even when it's hard to read the Word and hard to understand it. You go to church every Lord's Day even when it's hard to go to church. I know if you're sick or you're on vacation or whatever, obviously don't come to church. But even when you don't feel like going to church, you go to church. To, to be a disciplined Christian is very similar to the idea of being a disciplined person. Do you feel like flossing your teeth every morning before you brush them? I never feel like flossing my teeth, ever, 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 but I floss. Some days I forget to floss. I floss, I plan to floss every day. There, there are times when you don't feel like going to bed, when you know that you should go to bed. The other side of the coin, there are times when you, you don't feel like getting up when you need to get up in the morning. 6 a.m., it's time to be up, it's time to get to work. But we discipline ourselves. If we didn't, we'd all have rotten teeth and couldn't get out of bed, right? And, and so, I don't know what the, the difference is, but oftentimes when it comes to, to following Jesus, we forget that God uses the basic, ordinary, everyday stuff of discipline in the church. When it comes to church discipline, the first thing that we have to talk about is preventative discipline. That is living disciplined lives as God's people. When, when I've observed this, now I've been pastoring, this is my 17th year, and I've, I've observed things. I've observed that those of you who, who are usually here, who sing to God when we sing to God, who bring your Bible and you, you listen to the Word of God whenever it's read, taught, preached, who you, you pray with us when we pray. You're doing the things that Christ has asked you to do. And your life is, is, is disciplined. You are a disciple of Jesus. By the way, remember in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us how to make disciples, doesn't he? We don't like to talk about this, but Jesus says, teach them everything I commanded you to do. We often like to make it lesser than that and talk about baptism and and, and these things. So that's even the hard things. Um, But when it comes to, to church discipline, we know that the first, second, third, and the final steps of church discipline have been given to us by Christ himself in his word. And we know that Christ himself authorizes churches and elders to do this. He has given to us the keys of the kingdom, the the church members and the elders. And and so whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What, What he is saying there is when we follow the word of God, when it comes to going and trying to help somebody, we are obeying Jesus. And when we give his word to them, it's his authority. It's his instruction. But the idea, friends, is, is when we talk about church discipline, it's important that re- we remember the wonderful truth of Luke 6 and Revelation 
21 that we dealt with this morning in Sunday school, verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. This is, this is a people, this is us in the future, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, and that is for Jesus Christ. Um, if we learned anything at all through our series in Hebrews, it has been that Christ is fitting us all for heaven through the various warnings and encouragements, through suffering in this world, as terrible as it may be. May we be like Moses, who was willing to suffer the reproach of Christ, says Hebrews, as a Jew, as part of God's people, rather than staying and playing it safe as an Egyptian. So when we consider church discipline... And this final message, I hope final message, (laughs) asking and and wondering what it is and why do we do it and how should we go about it, we often just jump right into Matthew 18, 15, just like I did this morning, and skipping over verses 12 through 14, which are, in my opinion, the heart of church discipline. Matthew 18, 12 through 14. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does, not, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. But if your brother sins, or there's actually, there's no but there, I'm sorry. Verse 15, if your brother sins, no, 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 sis. We, we tend to divorce verses 12 through 14 from verse 15, even verse 14 from this verse 15. It's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish if your brother sins. If your brother sins, we often read those three verses and think about, who do we think about? Well, we think about the folks that maybe haven't gathered with the church in a while. And I'm not saying that it, doesn't, it couldn't mean that. I think that's a great example. The body gathers, and, and week after week, if weeks go by and we're not seeing a member, we need to go and see how they're doing. We need to leave the 99, as Jesus says, to go for the one and do our best to recover them. But what Jesus says next seems to change that idea, doesn't it? The one who is strained may not be talking about geographically strained from the pews on the Lord's Day, but strained how? In, in, in the heart, in sin. The easiest place to stray from sin <laughs> under the nose of your pastor is to keep coming every week. And, and this is the illustration that I, that I use because I think it explains it. Washing the outside of the cup very well, putting on the nice clean clothes, combing the hair, not making a fuss, being there every week. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a reason to not attend church, no. Christ commands us to be here. But then inwardly, being what? Dead man's bones. It is so easy to be a Pharisee in the heart. And, and we're all, 
and I mean no offense at all about this, and I include myself in this, we're all, including your pastor, pharisaical, even if it's just a little bit or sometimes. And, and we trust that the Holy Spirit is working that out of us. But the heart of church discipline is saving souls from eternal hell. The heart of church discipline is extremely merciful. It isn't vindictive. It isn't, I don't like this person. Nope. So we've been talking about this because this is what Christ has given us to help us, to help fit each other for heaven. If I'm sinning and you notice it, you have every right to come to me in private and to gently and kindly correct me. And some of you do that sometimes. I need it. I remember a, a story. I, I have friends who are pastors, and um, they will put these stories out there. And one of them, and you guys know this guy, but I'm not going to say his name. He's got a little bit of a mouth on him, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so the day rolls around. It was day off, and he had a hard, long week, and he's, he's on the couch, and he's watching a Western, and he loves it. I'm not talking about me, but I'm guilty of the same thing. And so his, his wife comes around, children are all grown and gone, says, honey, we've, we've got to get over there, we're going to be late. I don't want to go. You just leave me alone. I want to sit here and watch my program. I'm enjoying my program. Can, can I just have a day off? Hun, no, we've we got to go. So with, a, with an attitude, puts his shoes on, goes to the, the, the small gathering with other folks in the church, and has a rotten attitude. Next morning, one of the men from that group calls and says, Pastor, <laughs> your attitude was terrible. That was not becoming of a minister of Jesus Christ or a Christian man for that matter. When he heard these words, God humbled him. And he says, you're absolutely right, brother. He thanked him for calling. Remember the Proverbs 9.8, the wise man loves the one who reproves him, and he loves the reproof, thanked him. You know what he did next? He got on the phone and called that, that group of folks, and he asked for their forgiveness for his mouth, his sorry attitude. What was that? Technically, that was, that was a form of church discipline, um, correction. So today I want to set forth for you two more aspects of church discipline and the way God uses them. The first is focused on merciful reconciliation. That's in the title of the sermon. Restoration, forgiveness. The second is, the second's the one that none of us want to talk about. It's excommunication. And, and how God uses church discipline in its final step of excommunication. And how God uses that. Alright? So... We've listed out so many things about church discipline, but another way God uses church discipline is this way. Church discipline can bring merciful reconciliation. Verse 15 of Matthew 18. If he listens to you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Very important words. Notice the way I worded this point. Church discipline can bring about merciful reconciliation. I haven't said this yet, but it needs to be said right now. Church discipline doesn't always work. Like we want it to, like the Bible says it should. 
You know that. That's why there are people who have been uh, excommuned from, from the congregation of which they were a member because it, it didn't work. And we pray that they'll come to their senses at some point and come back and work through forgiveness and reconciliation, be readmitted to the Lord's table and brought back into membership of the church and under the, the care of the, of the pastors. It uh, doesn't always work. doesn't always go how, how it wants to. I remember one couple... And this is totally private. I'm not saying no names, but me and one of the elders, we were trying to help them. And says, we're here, you know, you've got this and this in your life, and we're going to help you. We want to restore you. Well, that was it. So what happens is, is people often excommunicate themselves. The, the pastor tr- sees some sin in their life and is trying to help them in private and prayerfully and lovingly and as gently as possible. Now, this, this person was divisive, to other people, okay. It isn't that they just had an attitude problem. <laughs> but at the minute we began to talk about trying to help them, they were done. They were out of here. They were gone. And, and so in this culture, now you've noticed in this culture, it seems like no one's accountable to anybody. You noticed? And, and it seems like evil is just growing and growing. And, and I can't believe what kids in public school today are able to get away with. Well, if I, would have, if I would have talked like they talk now at public school as a kid, my backside would have been black and blue. I'd have been in detention. I could put in detention one time for things far, far less than what's allowed today at the high school. It's, it's sad. And so the concept of, of anyone being held responsible or accountable for their misactions has really grown unpopular in our culture. But let's forget about that for a moment, <laughs> the, the not working. This is the question. What if it works? <laughs> what if it works? Are you prepared for that? What if it works? People who are inexperienced in church discipline, and myself included, inexperienced in conflict resolution are often so focused on that person and that sin that they have blinders on. It's like they have blinders on. That's all they can see. And so when the person does show remorse and the Holy Spirit's working and they come to repentance and they receive the Word of God, sometimes we're not, we're not equipped to know what to do next. Oh, wow, that worked. So what do we do now? And I suggest to you... <clears throat> that often the focus of our prayers and our minds has been going toward this one and this problem, and we're so accustomed to, to even having cut a person out of our life, and they've, they've sinned against us, they've hurt us, and so now we have resentment in our hearts against this sinner, that when it comes to real forgiveness, it could be a tough hurdle. So the problem isn't so much now with the person who is sinning, but it's with us. It's with the membership receiving them. Um, in our neighborhood back in, in Springfield, Missouri, um, many of us were aware of a couple of ex-convicts who lived in the neighborhood and who had, who had done uh, sentenced time in state prison for a few years. And everyone loved to complain about this. You've, you've heard this, right? 
But one elderly resident piped up and said, hey, these men have served their time. They have jobs. They have families now. They have paid the consequences for their crimes. It's time we forgive them and forget about it. So we have to emphasize that the purpose of church discipline is always for merciful restoration of one's heart to Jesus Christ, followed by merciful reconciliation with those that they've sinned against, and perhaps it's reconciliation to the whole church body, the members of the church. But not everyone is able to forgive and be reconciled to the repentant sinner who returns. Remember the prodigal son? Remember we had a man who had two sons. The younger of the son and his foolishness says, Father, Dad, give, give me the money that, that you owe me from my estate. So he divided the wealth between the two sons. And pretty soon the young son gathered up everything that he had and he squandered the father's estate with, with wicked and loose living. The text says loose living. Let's stick with the text. He had spent everything. And a severe famine occurs in that country. And he became very poor. So what did he do? He goes and he hires himself out to one of the citizens of his country. And this man sends him out into his fields to feed the pigs. And this man was so hungry, so impoverished, that he gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. No one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, Luke 15, 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? And he says in his heart, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So we know what happens next. The son gets up and he returns home. But here we find a process of forgiveness and reconciliation that is not only biblical, but it is absolutely beautiful. The question we're asking here is, what should happen when the sinner returns home? What should happen when you win your brother at whatever stage it may be in that discipline process with whatever, whoever he is talking to within the church body? Well, we need to be sure that the sinner says the correct things, because what he says is going to reveal his heart, that he says the correct things about himself and his sin. At this point, words mean everything. Um, and, and we hope that a life devoted to Christ will, will say this, although no life devoted to Christ is perfect. But you notice what he said in verse 18, I will get up and go to my father. He, he, is, he is thinking through this in his mind. And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And what we learn of the text is when we read verse 20, he does just that. 
He goes back. He admits his sin. So the person who Jesus says that we've won our brother, he's, he's heard you. And of course, Jesus doesn't go into a lot of detail. He, he knew that he was going to write the rest of the New Testament through the Holy Spirit, right? But here we get the details and, and, and other places. We must own our own sin. We must own our own sin. We must admit to our sin. We must admit who we have sinned against. Every sin is a sin against God. Every sin. Even those sins that to you are totally private that nobody sees or knows. It's a sin against God. It was also a sin against his father. And he wholeheartedly admits that. When the Holy Spirit is working in a person's heart who is guilty, they readily admit their sin. And they understand the sinfulness of their sin. So much so that we're humbled. Notice he says, I'm no longer worthy. There is no pride in this sinner at all. None whatsoever. Now notice the prodigal's actions. Verses 20 through 24. I won't read it. You can read it. I'll just summarize it for you with my thoughts here. He came back. He came back. The Holy Spirit used his life of misery with the pigs and starvation to bring him to his senses. Spanking is a good thing that we do to our children when they need it with a heart of mercy, with a heart of love, with a heart of correction. Why do we spank? Because Proverbs twenty two twenty four tells us we should spank our children. But we don't see results right away, do we? Sometimes we don't see any results. So we're spanking by faith and not by sight. Now I know we can talk about this one who went off on his own. Father didn't send him out. But it wasn't until life became utterly painful that the Holy Spirit brought him to his senses. He comes back face to face with dad. He admits his sin. And although we don't see the words, the attitude here is obviously implied. Please forgive me. It's obviously understood that that, that's what's being communicated. He's humbled. I already said that. No longer worthy. Now notice the father's response. Verse 20. He feels compassion the minute he sees him. And does he wait for him to come all the way to him? No. He runs to his sinning son. And he doesn't stand at an arm's length. He embraces him. He hugs him. And he kisses him. There's not a bit of ice in the Father's veins. And unless we begin to get prideful, friends, this, this Father, He's not talking about us. None of us are like this. He's talking about God. This is the way God receives a sinner. And this is the way God is telling us that we should train ourselves to receive sinners. No questions asked. He doesn't first go and clean himself up. No, notice what he does next. After his son confesses his sin, and by the way, guys, when we confess our sin, I did this morning, 
confessed to my wife that I had a nasty attitude and asked her to forgive me. I did yesterday for a few minutes. And I was like, I got I to gotta clear this up before the Lord and my wife before I could preach. It's going to be awkward. Even to your wife that you may have been married to for 40 years or more. It's supposed to be awkward confessing your sins. Nothing takes more humility than confessing your sin to another person. But the Bible commands us that we need to be confessing our sins one to another. I take that as one-on-one in, in private, unless they become public. The Father immediately forgives him, and it's, it's so obvious by what he does. Notice, he says to his servants, quickly, quickly, don't wait a second, quickly, quickly, bring out the best robe. The best robe? This kid must have been filthy from head to toe. He's living with the pigs. And you think he smelled pretty? He smelled like Reitgard or Stetson? No way. He stunk. What did he smell like? He smelled like the pigs. We, we smell like those who we're with or what we're with. He smelled like the pigs. And of course, you, some of you might be thinking, well, I wonder if the pigs, there is an imagery. Yes, you bet it is imagery that Luke is using to show that he is so far away from God and the family of God, they would refer to the unbelievers as swine. As, as pigs. Bring out the second best robe. Bring out the one that I loved that I had in the 1970s. My best robe from the 70s. Bring, bring out his robe, the one that's tattered from when he was younger. It'll be a little tight, but he's in such a bad mess right now, we wouldn't dare put our finest clothing on this man. No, no, no. He comes back, I, I think he's not even clothed. He's naked. Bring out the best robe. The best robe. And so is Christ when he saves a man or woman in their rotten, filthy sins. What does he do? He just cloaks us with his righteous robe makes us pure and perfect through his justification by his blood. The father doesn't stop with the robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. He doesn't stop there. Bring the fatted calf, the one that's ready to be slaughtered. You know that steer that weighs about 1,200 pounds and it's getting a pretty good rind of fat on him. Bring out the perfect one. I want you to cook it on the fire. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. Because the son of mine who was dead has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. My dear brothers and sisters, what we have is one of the most glorious pictures in all the Bible of the sinner whom God saves. Uh, This is us when the Spirit made us aware of our sin and and brought us to Jesus the first time when we believed. Furthermore, friends, this is us. Every time we stray from Christ and and into sinfulness, this is us. And and we are living this side of heaven. and, And by doing so, we are in this pattern. We are prone to wander. 
says, come thou fount. We are prone to leave the God we love. We find ourselves taking up again and following those fleshly temptations until the grace of God comes into our hearts and the Word of God into our minds and the communion of the saints into our our presence and we come to our senses. This is why we must gather as often as we possibly can with the church on the Lord's Day. This is the work of of the Spirit in people. And it's important to recognize this. And it's important to be very specific in what we say in restoring a Christian. Um, To say sorry doesn't work. Sorry is only saying how you feel. It's keeping the ball in your, car, in, in your court. It, it's the incorrect word to use when, when you have offended someone or sinned against God and someone else. So in your families, husbands, wives, kids, dads, moms, friends, when you've offended someone, go to them and you say, please forgive me or will you forgive me? And what that does is that puts the ball in their court. You're being honest and open about your sins. Now the ball is in their court for them to then forgive you. And we forgive as we have been forgiven. You're asking for a decision on the other person's part. When you just say you're sorry, you're keeping the ball in your court. You're, you're wanting to hang on to how things go. And I mean, it's really tempting to, to do. Um. You don't say, if I've sinned against you, please forgive me. If I've offended you, please forgive me. No, no. Will you forgive me for the way I sinned against you? And name the way. And guys, when you're working with other people like your kids or um, when, when you're counseling folks, conflict resolution, whatever that situation may be, you have to hold people's hands to do this. There's been situations where the offense has come out and I'm, I'm, I'm just telling the husband, the Bible says you need to ask her, please forgive me. And you make them, you know, they got to do it. <laughs> this is the way Christ wants us to do it. I've had at times too, it's, it's like you could, park a Mack truck between (laughs) the husband and the wife. There's so much resentment. There's so much ice between them. Well, coach the husband say, hey, you need to put your arm around her and tell her that you love her. And I want you to take her to dinner Friday night and not to McDonald's. This is what Christ wants you to do, to love your wife. So, guys, we need to be modeling this in our families and to each other and and really helping each other out when it comes to this. You know, maybe it was a situation in the church between between two different members, whatever it was. So when we we ask for forgiveness, when the one says, I forgive you, he is making a promise, which is exactly what forgiveness is. He's making a promise to never raise the matter again. Boy, that, that captures the idea here of the father forgiving the son, doesn't it? <laughs> He's got no plans of bringing up the fact that little Johnny had a season with the pigs. 
It's gone. New robe, fatted calf, ring, sandals, big party. So then when, when you say, I forgive you, what we say in our family is, okay, throw it away. <laughs> Just throw it away. Don't remember it again. Don't ask questions. Don't, don't bring it up again. Just throw it away. In your mind, it's tossed into the garbage can and it's gone forever. Um, and God will help you to never, ever bring it up again and, and to not think about it any longer. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. We heard such a great message by Pastor Kurt a few months ago. Love keeps no record of offenses. It keeps no records of ways people have sinned against us. Love holds no grudges. Love does not resent others. It doesn't. And these things, friends, Christ himself through the Holy Spirit and his word must teach us these things. And he wants us to be like he is and like he is portrayed in the parable of the prodigal son. So back to that parable. Did you notice the pride in the older brother when you've read it? Have you noticed the pride? This is what not to do. First, I need to turn to Luke 15. You can laugh, it's funny. The brother. I mean, I mean, can you imagine? We're at this party, the fatted calf. Here's the son. I mean, everybody's just so excited to see him. He's repented. He listened. We've won the brother. It worked. It worked. But he became angry, the older son, and was not willing to go in to the party. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look. For so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never have given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. You give him a fatted calf. You don't even give me a young goat. But when the son of yours came, notice, son of yours, no relation to me, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. He's talking like the devil right there. Everything is exaggerated. It's made much worse than it is. And he totally disassociates from him. Now, friends, I hate to tell you this, but there's a lot of churches that are a lot like ours, that are good, reformed churches that do church discipline, that act like the older son. I mean, I could... I feel like I could write at least a small pamphlet on experiences that I've heard of. One of my good friends was pastoring a church in Arizona. And everything was going great. They began to have issues with depression with a person in their family. And the church that they submitted themselves to abused them emotionally and force them to do things that they had no business to do. It, it was terrible. They should have done everything with their, within their power to help her. But they didn't. Oh no, she's, she's sinning because she suffers from depression. And so you know what he did? 
He resigned his post as the pastor of this church. I would have done the same thing. But that's the sort of oppression that does happen. That's that's the older brother oppression that refuses to forgive, that's always going to have have a grudge, that's going to get its pound of flesh no matter what. And that is the attitude of Satan. It is not the attitude of a follower of Jesus. So, but we do it, don't we? In our hearts. We can be so guilty of the same thing. We can become so offended by another person's sins, their sins against us, that we write them off. We cut them out of our lives. We won't even give them a chance. Now, what am I not talking about here? In situations of real abuse, okay, you, you got to cut people off and move on. Um, situations where you're dealing with somebody who's just this aggressive, unrepentant, continual monster, uh, reconciliation is probably never going to happen. But let's remember, we did not learn Christ in this way. The attitude of the older brother. Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We do forgive, and we never bring it up again. I know it's impossible, probably, in some cases, to, to just totally forget it. We have to remember, too, it takes time as well. You know, if you're dealing with a situation where the husband has, has left as an adulterer, <laughs> you can't expect her to begin to trust him in two weeks. It might take five, ten years. And even something as drastic as that, she may carry to her grave just a sliver of a memory of that and a feeling like, oh, he's on another business trip. Oh, I hope it doesn't happen again. But we're to forgive. We're to forgive. And I think we can forgive and, and still have these struggles of dealing with trust issues. But Ephesians 5.1, the verse that follows the be kind, be forgiving, says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What's he saying? Imitate the father of the sinning prodigal who left. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Even the man in, in 1 Corinthians, who the apostle says was guilty of wickedness that unbelievers did not do, even he was forgiven. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 He says in verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. The man had repented. He had repented. He had come back. What's the apostle saying? Bring him back in as a member of the church into the full fellowship of the church. Um. That brings us to the final step of church discipline, which is excommunication. Lastly, the final way that God uses church discipline is excommunication. 
Again, I use this word can. Church discipline can bring about the excommunication of a member. We, we, back to Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. If he refuses even to tell it to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The process to come to this final step of church discipline, it might take a long time. It could, it could be more than one year. And we pray and hope that church discipline never comes to excommunication. But we must bear in mind that Jesus does lay out the steps carefully in the text that we just read. Um, <clears throat> after the first try and going to the sinner, if he doesn't listen, again, you go back. Um, you keep trying. You take two or more with you. Um, you might wonder, well, why go again if he just blows you off? Because not only is this the instruction of Christ, but you love this person. And this is the, the way of God's mercifully uh, reconciling them back. Uh, God's design is that by taking more on the, on the second and third and final steps, by, by taking more, by telling more people, that the sinner will, will ultimately be pressured to stop following his flesh and to start again following Christ. I think there's a lot of wisdom here when we see that he's to take two or three witnesses. By, every, by two or three witnesses, every fact is confirmed. Um, it's important, too, when we begin to do this, that we go directly to the person who may be guilty. Otherwise, we could be guilty of spreading gossip or acting on gossip. Notice, every fact may be confirmed. So it takes a large degree of proof and real witnesses. Um, but we want to be as merciful as God is with us. We want to be as long-suffering as God is with us. If he refuses to listen, it's time to tell everyone. Again, this is going to require some real proof and real witnesses. Adultery is a very common sin that we would begin church discipline with. Well, how does somebody prove it? How much evidence is there? How many witnesses? Well, most likely there's a spouse involved who can show you text messages, emails, etc. Um, plus her personal witness of him being with another woman. Were there any members who have witnessed him checking into a hotel with his adulterer? And by this, this point, too, he may have already confessed to the sin, but still not be willing to repent. So the elders tell it to the church. The church prays. The church does their best to encourage this one to come back to Jesus, to save his marriage, to come back to the church. Um, and in a case like adultery, the elders may give the sinning member some time um, the cases that I'm aware of, he hadn't gathered back to worship with the church in months, and you hope that he may return. Think of the prodigal son. And then more time elapses, six, eight weeks. Ultimately, he is removed from church membership. To excommunicate someone is, it, it doesn't mean that we ban them from the church property, per se, with every instance. Church discipline isn't just one size fits all, uh, but to excommunicate one is to not allow him to commune with the church. We, we commune by taking the Lord's Supper together. To excommunicate someone is not to allow him to, to progress in friendships or fellowships with the church. To excommunicate him is to take him off of the member list to where he's no longer under the care of the church and the elders. 
When one is excommunicated, he's simply treated as an unbeliever. Um, and following the rules that Christ has given us, we can be sure that this would be the way Christ would want us to do things. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul's language is pretty strong. He says in verse 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, this is merciful reconciliation to Christ. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So the words of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus, is if he refuses even to listen to the church, that is, we have a church meeting. I'm hypothetical here. I have nobody in mind. Um, and, and all the members discover something of the nature of the sin in a very clear way. And they begin to pray. So, if he refuses to listen to the membership of the church, Jesus says he's to be to us as an unbeliever. Jesus here, just in case, because we're going to question ourselves, he says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The elders in the church can know they are doing the will of Christ because they have followed his instructions in Matthew 18 and other passages from the Bible. Um, <coughs> when it comes to this final step, by the way, Jay Adams, he, before he passed away, he, he was considered the dean of counseling, and he wrote, I think this is the best book that I've had on church discipline, and he says this. He says, since the unrepentant person whose membership in the church has been terminated and is said to be removed from the midst, something that he is not to be allowed to attend the worship services of the church, that is a wrong reading of this passage. What Paul means is that he is to be removed from the care and discipline of the church. He's no longer considered a member of the organized church. In the midst means among believers is one of them. Um, but since he is to be treated as an unbeliever, unless he is actively divisive, he needs to come. He needs to hear the preaching of the word of God. Perhaps God will use the preaching of the word to bring him to repentance. Again, this isn't one-size-fits-all. There are cases where you get a person who's very disruptive and divisive, where we would say, you're just not welcome here until you're repentant. Um, and we have to be careful, too. You, we could be dealing with a case where someone has abused children, and so we've got to be smart about this. Um, let's say they, they do repent and come back and things are going well, but they have a past history of abuse with children. We're not going to put him in the nursery, right? Um, whatever that is, we want to help them to grow. So again, remember, the pur purpose of church discipline at this excommunication stage is not to be mean to someone because you don't like them or like the way that they dress it's not to give him what he deserves. It's for their own good. It's like the prodigal son who was slopping around with the pigs with a hungry tummy because of all the wicked things that he chose to do. Blew all of his money on prostitutes. 
And he finally came to his senses. It took him being separated from the family of God, the communion of the saints, you might say. It took the unbelieving pigs to make him come to his senses. And then he returned. So God uses excommunication to bring us back to Jesus Christ and his body. It is a wonderful gift from God. I don't pretend to have answered all the questions that there might be on church discipline, especially on this final one. Um, I say that when we have removed someone from, from membership because they just won't listen, won't listen, won't listen, they will not be taking communion with us. To take communion is to commune with, with the body. And you might say, well, how does this, what's this supposed to look like? Let's use a man. Let's just call him Jack. Uh, Jack has done this and that. The other thing that's been going on, every, the whole church knows. And he does come to hear the word. And then he leaves. So what are we to, to say to everyone else? You need to not look at him. <laughs> no. We greet him in the name of the Lord. Not as a brother. Jack may call and say, Hey, it's good seeing you at church this morning. Why don't I meet you at 10 o'clock for breakfast and you can, we'll go golfing together. And, I, and I'm going to say, Jack, I love you. But no, any time that we're going to spend together, any conversation that we're going to have, it's got to be about your problem and, and helping you seek God's forgiveness and repent and come back and be restored to the church body. Okay? And maybe it's between two, maybe it's two women who are very close friends. One is guilty of adultery and has been excommunicated from the church. Jane calls my wife. <laughs> let's say her name is Jane, the one who's been excommunicated. Hey, let's get together for coffee and chit-chat like we did well, like we used to do all the time, and want to talk about the problem? <laughs> you want to talk about the sin and how I can help you come to Jesus? Sure. Uh, no, didn't want to talk about that. <laughs> I wanted to talk about music and some other piano sort of things. Well, then, Jane, I'm sorry. I cannot treat you like a fellow believer. Um, the, the church under the direction of Christ and our elders has, has put you under church discipline and has excommunicated you so that you'll come back to Jesus. And we did this. Why? Because we love you and we care about your soul. Father, thank you. Father, I pray that you would help us as we think about these things. And I pray, Father, that if Whatever comes up in the future, that all things would be done for your glory and in mercy and in a spirit of forgiveness. We love you. Amen.